welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. Judges, did I tell you what chapter? Just guess. Judges chapter 7 is where the text will be reading from. do appreciate you being here today. Uh, I, I have to tell you, as a, as a pastor, one of the worst things you can do is look out the window when you're in your office. Only pastors appreciate that. Um, I used to close the blinds, and now I leave them wide open. And when you look out and you see fewer cars than you did the last Sunday, and then you're like, oh my goodness, it's just me and 20. And then you walk in and you see a lot of people and you're like, oh, that's, that's better. Um, maybe I should just close it in July. But I do appreciate you being here. Everybody decided to be in the balcony this morning for some reason. I appreciate you being up there. Helps us out. Um, this is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, and um, it's a very familiar passage, as I've said many times before, when I preach or when you're teaching a lesson or hearing a sermon or hearing a lesson, that the fear is that we let the, the familiarity of the passage um, allow us to miss what God has for us. And so I encourage you and challenge you not to do that today. Um, before I start, I want to let you know, if you didn't know, we have a guest preacher here tonight, which means you should show up, not lay out. This will be, a, we're going to have a packed house. He's got people coming from all over the East Coast. Um, our ministry assistant, Joe Rivenbark, who is called of God to ministry, is going to preach his very first official sermon tonight, which means I want everybody to be here with your Bibles and a notepad and a pen sitting really up close front together with your legs crossed, staring intently into his eyes. <laughs> he won't be a bit nervous. This will help him out if he is. But no, be here tonight. Support Joe. He does have a lot of family coming, and um, they're from the East Coast. I didn't know there were rednecks that lived at the beach, but um, I know there's some at Myrtle Beach, but not where they're from, but he'll have his redneck family here and a lot of friends. He's got a lot of support. And so be here tonight to support Joe, and um, he's promised to preach really short, and so that tells me I've got an hour to today, so no, just kidding. But I encourage you to be here and support him. Say amen every now and then. Let him know he's doing a good job, and um, pray for him. He might be a little bit nervous. There's a chance. Um, I hope he is. He should be. I'm a little nervous this morning, like always, but we'll get through it. So if you found Judges chapter 7, let's stand and honor God's word this morning as absolute truth. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, but really contextually it's chapter 6, 7, and 8, but that would take more than an hour, so we won't do that today. Some of you seem sleepy anyway, so I won't do that. 
Verse 1, then Jeroboam, who is Gideon, I think I would prefer Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Harod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah, or Moray, in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people that are with thee, your army, they're too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people 22,000 scaredy cats. <laughs> and there remained 10,000. And the Lord said to Gideon, you still have too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will try them for thee. The same shall go with thee. And whoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone that laps of the water with his tongue as a dog laps, him shall thou set by himself likewise. Everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink, and the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men, but all the rest of the people bowed down on their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the 300 men that have lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into your hand. And let all the people go, every man into his place. So the people took victuals in their hand and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man into his tent, and retained those 300 men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We believe it's absolute truth. God, I know this passage is familiar. We've heard it from a child in Sunday school, maybe Bible school, and certainly as adults. But may we hear from you today. May we not let this familiar passage dictate what we already think about it. But we ask you to teach us from your word today. Empower us, strengthen our faith through this lesson in Gideon's life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to speak on this thought today, faith for the fight. As I've said the last couple Sundays, unintentionally, I've, we've been walking through what seems to be a, a series on faith and the importance of faith in our Christian life. And I think it goes without saying that if we don't practice our faith, we're going to struggle in this life. Our faith as believers is being put to the test like never before. And if the Lord tarries a few more weeks, a few more years, a few more decades, and you're still around, your faith will be tried. You will be pressured. The heat will be turned up. And I don't say this easily, I say this cautiously. We will find out who is and who is not truly men and women of faith. It's, it sounds bold, it sounds almost arrogant to say, and I don't mean it that way. It's going to be, will be, and quite honestly has been, 
one of the saddest realities in the Christian walk is to see professing Christians walk away from the faith. Now, for theological clarification, no one who's ever been saved walks away from their salvation. But the scripture is clear that as the day approaches, there will be those who have professed for years, who have sat in pews for years, who have even preached for years potentially, who have taught Sunday school class, who have given, who have served, that will walk away from the faith. Those who were professors and not possessors. The question is, what will cause that? It's not someone who says, well, I'm born again and I'm on my way to heaven, but all of a sudden I don't want to. Because anybody who's truly ever experienced salvation and understands what happened when you were saved and understands the implications of being saved will not walk away from it. But those who have not truly been born again As the pressure intensifies, as the heat rises, more and more will walk away from the faith. We have seen it already in in the American church. People that are uncomfortable with some of the silliest things walk away from their faith. I'm not talking about people who walked away from church. I think people who walk away from church is kind of a a symbol or a sign of them and their true relationship. I didn't say swap churches. I didn't say church hoppers. Although personally, since you asked, I think some of them (laughs) might not truly be who they say they are. If you swap churches like you swap Fill in the blank. This because you don't like this or don't like that. You probably, potentially, I'm trying to be nice, aren't filled with the Holy Spirit and you're allowing things that shouldn't bother you, bother you. I don't have anybody in mind. We all all got friends that skip churches like a rock on a pond and wherever they sink, they sink. I'm talking about people who are not born again and it will be evident because of their faith being put to the test. In our text, in this series that's kind of developed, we've got to be reminded how God sees, God judges, if you will, faith. The book of Hebrews tells us, we can't understate this, that without faith it is impossible to please God. That's a, that's a pretty poignant, powerful statement. That without faith, it is impossible to please God. And every believer wants to please God. Has a desire to please God. And if we're going to please God, we've got to be men and women of faith. What is faith? Faith. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1, 1, that we walk by faith and not by sight. If we walk by sight, we are miserable. 
Church, look around. Not just at our government and our country and the world. Look around at the church in America. If we walk by what we see, we will be unfortunate souls. We'll walk around, woe is me, what is happening? We'll go to the Southern Baptist Convention or we'll watch highlights and say, oh, the Southern Baptist, the largest denomination on the planet is dwindling. Now, if we walk by sight, we'll say, oh no, what's happening? The Southern Baptist must be of the devil. But if we walk by faith in the word of God, we will say, well, that's what we should expect. It's not because they're mad at the president. It's not because they're mad at Rick Warren. It's not because they're friends of Rick Warren. I know I'm talking above and around some of y'all right now. It's because people are walking away from their faith. And it's eschatological. It's prophetic. But if I walk by sight, I'll wring my hands and potentially give up. If I had some pastors in the room today, I would tell them this. If you walk by sight and not by faith, you will be miserable. There's pastors who are struggling. I know the life of a pastor and their mental struggles, their emotional struggles, their desire to wanna round everybody up and keep them together. Not because we want big numbers, but because we want to know that they know they're born again and in the flock. Any pastor that's worthwhile, I promise you, and I'm not saying I've got it all together, but when people drop out of church, I didn't say when they skip and go to another church. When people drop out of church, drop out of faith, it bothers a true shepherd because their soul and you're concerned about their soul. You're not concerned about them going to like some other preacher. I mean, that kind of hurts personally. We're talking about the people that go to Bedside Baptist and, they're, and they've got perfect attendance. You start to worry about their soul. If you walk by sight, Sunday after Sunday, as a Christian, part of a local church, and you see the numbers dwindle, you'll say, oh my goodness. The devil's winning. But if you walk by faith, you'll know why this is happening. It's not encouraging other than it's just truth. The reality is we are in a fight. And I know when I say that word, some rednecks in here get excited. <laughs> and some snowflakes don't like it. There are snowflakes, I think, in the Christian world, I think. I offended somebody already and I hadn't been 10 minutes in, or have I? Yeah. When we say fight in the church today, there are people that get excited. They've probably been in one or two. And then there's a, maybe a generation who don't like to talk about that. Quite honestly, I'm not talking about secular liberals. I'm talking about people in the church who think, well, we're just supposed to deal with it. Now, I, I'm going to get this out of the way because I won't be able to finish if I don't. Church in America has changed. 
Church members in America have changed. I'd like to say Christians have changed, but I'm not sure I'm going to be fair when I say that because I have opinions. But for some reason, our spiritual forefathers understood that we were in a fight. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. What are they talking about? They're not talking about fighting in the Battle of Armageddon. They're talking about the spiritual war that we're in right now. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you sissies. Soldiers of the cross, right? You know, I woke up, you woke up when I said sissies, didn't you? I, I'm, talking to me? What? Right. They understood that we're in a fight. We're in a battle. We're in a war. And we understand we're not in a battle or a fight or a war against each other. Because Paul said we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But we are in a battle. We are in a fight. And it's tough enough, you better put on some armor. And until we wake up to the reality that we're in a fight, man, we're missing out. And we're going to be unsuccessful. There are people today, and I, I mean this honestly and sin sincerely, and I've heard it. I'm not making up something here. Well, and this is, this is such a weird Theology slash philosophy. I think I know where they're coming from, and I'm not going to try to fix it right now. Well, we know it's all going to go to hell. Right? We all, we know that the world's coming to a terrible end, and there's going to be a battle, and, and all the, so we might as well just hang out and let what happen, what happens happen. There, there trust me, some of you, Older folks may be looking at me like, is he making it? I'm telling you, there's a generation of professing Christians that think we should not be fighting. Everybody's clear of what fighting I'm talking about. It reminds me of this, and, and I, I hate to think about this story because it's embarrassing, but you weren't there. I was there. It's more embarrassing for me. There was a bully in my, I think he was in my third grade class. His name was Billy, Billy the Bully. We didn't call him that because we didn't know what bullying was then. We just knew it was happening and we called it something else. Now, I was a perfect child. I, I never, I only spoke good to everyone. I had friends, I mean, I, I don't know why. But Billy wanted to beat me up. Now, honest before, before God, I wasn't perfect, but I don't know that I'd ever spoken 10 words to Billy. But Billy, I guess he found a weak vessel. And um, he decided, I was a late bloomer, by the way, he decided um, I was the one he was gonna pick on and scare to death. And this is true story. And Billy would tell me, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get you today. I'm, I'm like, welcome to school, I'm gonna get you today. And I don't know how, why he did. And one day, it was the day. I'm doing it. Today's the day. And I'm like, dude, you lived the whole day, go to school the whole day, knowing you're just about to get whooped. And, um, and don't know why. That's the other thing. Now, if something would have happened, I might have, I don't know. But I, and I was about 62 pounds soaking wet, probably. 
And um, Billy was bigger than me. Uh, he was stronger. At least he looked stronger than me. And he scared me. And so all day long I lived in torture. Knowing that after school, Billy was going to whoop me. And he had said it before but never followed through. Which is still kind of bad. I mean, you live like, oh, this is terrible. And so that day, for whatever reason, that was the day after school, um, Billy stood outside the, the door in the hallway, Woodrow Wilson. It'll always be Woodrow Wilson, by the way. Liberals. Anyway, so um, you, you had the big door and then you had the big glass. I saw Billy out there just waiting. I'm like, oh, dear. I'm just sitting in school. Bell's rung. I'm just hanging out. I ain't going nowhere. And the teacher's like, you going to leave today? I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm going to sit here. And eventually I had to leave because I guess the teacher was, had to go home. And so I walk out, and Billy's waiting on me. And fortunately, Billy never punched me, but he slung me all over the hallway like a rag doll, and, uh, which was good because that's better than being punched. I've heard. And so he slung me around, and I would just stand up, and he'd grab me and sling me around, and then he'd grab me and sling me, until I guess he got tired or had to go home, and he left. To this day, I'm embarrassed to tell that. Now, I could be very spiritual and say, I would just stood there and took it like a man, you know, <laughs> a man of God would do. But today, I'm still bitter that I did that. Like, I've got flesh, and I'm not happy about telling you that story. But when I think about that, it reminds me, or it makes me imagine, that's exactly what's happening today with Christians. Now, I understand we turn the other cheek. I'm not saying we put on the boxing gloves and go looking for a fight. What I am saying is the fight has come to us. Christians didn't go looking to pick a fight, but the fight came to us. And we shouldn't be surprised because Paul told us we're in a war, we're in a fight, we're in a battle. But it makes me almost sick on my spiritual stomach to see Christians standing, letting the enemy sling them around in the hallway. And that's what we're doing. But I believe God wants us, and I hope this doesn't offend anyone, to fight. I think God wants us to stand up for Jesus. I think he wants us to be a soldier of the cross. Not slinging them around in the hallway, but at least standing up for what's worth standing up for. That's the fight I'm talking about. Not letting the world sling us around. Not letting the, the antichrist of this world, this country, the government, or wherever, sling us around. That's what's changed in America, by the way. And I'm not going to go there. Everybody relax. Christians used to have a little backbone and were reverenced and respected in America. But because many Christians let Billy sling them around in the hallway and do absolutely nothing, we have what we have now. And we come together in our church as we should, and we shake hands and kiss babies and drink coffee. And we, we like it this way. But that's not how it is once we leave the doors of this church. 
because we are thrown out into a world that is anti everything we are. That sounds terrible. The worst part about it is reality. And it's time, I believe, to fight. I don't know about you, but every time our president says this, and relax, we're in a battle for the soul of our nation. I want to fight. No, I don't. That ought to get every Christian's attention. Because there is a battle for the soul of our nation. And the enemy is the one fighting for the soul of our nation. The spiritual soul of our nation. I know he doesn't know that. I don't even know if he knows he said that, quite honestly. But it's becoming a prevalent theme in our country. While I'm there, if anybody's fighting for the soul of the nation, it ought to be the church and not the government. Their idea of what the soul of the nation looks like is not what our idea of what the soul of the nation should look like. Our text, as I said, is familiar. It takes place at a a spring. I think I've, I've got a picture up there. In January, we'll be going. There's about 20 of us signed up right now. We have room for five more before a waiting list, and there's still some people anticipating. And you can go to this place. This is suspected to be the area. There is a stream. They have historically and archaeologically determined that it was this area where our text takes place. But before we, and everybody just relax, the introduction is super long. Before we get to our text, we have to understand the context and what's going on. Israel is in a cycle, consistently in a cycle. I'm not one of these, and we've covered this, but if you're new here, I do not believe America has taken the place of Israel. We are not the new Israel. I do believe there are many biblical principles that apply to God's people in general. But Israel's in a cycle all through the Old Testament. They're serving God, God is blessing them, they get ticked off, they get upset at God, and they turn to evil, turn to idols, and God judges them, disciplines them, until they cry out to God and say, help us. Now, you don't have to be a theologian to figure out that's how a person does in their Christian walk often, that's how a church does often, that's how a country who's supposed to be Christian does often. And Israel's in this place now to where they are, they've turned their back on God. They become evil, Judges chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 tell us. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them to Midian, the Midianites. That was the consequence for their evil, for their turning their back on God. And the hand of Midian, the Midianites prevailed against them. Listen to this, and because the Midianites, the children of Israel, made them dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds, God's people are hiding out in caves and man-made dens in fear. Do you see this picture? We're scared. We've got an enemy, and they're surrounding us. 
So let's hide in the cave. Do I need, do I need three minutes there? Do I need to, or y'all just say this and I'll keep going. It'll save us three minutes. It's a pitiful picture of God's people hiding in fear. We're, we've not been given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Nobody hiding in a cave from the enemy has a sound mind. Nobody in fear has a sound mind. But this is God's people. This is the cycle they find themselves. It's a terrible picture. It's a pitiful picture of God's people in fear. They're in continuous torture from the Midianites. The Midianites were, they were like bandits. They were, they were um, mobile. They would walk, pitch their tent, and hang out. They were bullies. And what they would do is when they decided they would, and the Bible gives this picture that they would swarm onto Israel and destroy everything they had, crops, cattle, animals, and everything. It was Billy waiting out in the hallway. And this is how Israel was living. God's chosen, blessed people were living in fear and having their enemies come destroy everything they were doing worthwhile. Verse six of Judges chapter six says, and Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Now I gotta take a quick 20 second time out here. I, I, I mess up occasionally. And you do too, right? Everybody say, yeah, we're just a mess. And I, I don't say this as some great spiritual priest. But I find myself, the older and hopefully wiser I get, praying something like this. God, don't let me get in the place to where I'm having to call on you to get out of something. Like, be proactive. What Jesus said, lead me not into temptation, was the prayer. It's a different sermon all of a sudden, but everybody with me? Like, it might help us out if we said, God, help me today, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. And we might not get in the mess to where the next day we're saying, God, get me out of this mess. They're in a mess. Now, the other side of that coin is when you get in a mess, and you find yourself there, there is a place to call out to. There's a person to call out, and God wants you to call out to him. Don't ever let some super spiritual preacher tell you, well, you know, you just got yourself in this mess, and God didn't have anything to do with you. No, he wants you to call on him. There are people that find themselves in caves in fear, and they're afraid of the enemy, but they're also afraid to call out to God because somebody's told them they messed up too bad. No, God, God is a father who wants you to call on him, to help him, to help you. Y'all hear that? Everybody hear that? No matter where you at, you're at, no matter how you got there, God loves you and wants to provide grace and mercy to you, but you gotta call out to him for help. And he won't say, nope, too far gone. And Israel finds themselves there and they call out to God. And what does God do? 
He answers. I'm going to tell you something, though. The answer is not always exactly what you want to hear. It's like a parent. They're going to help, but they're going to have a little talk with you. So this is what happens. But I want you to see this before you see anything else any further. When we look at this book and we see, well, there's a book called Judges. Most of us know, some of us know, that there was a time in Israel's history known as the, the period of Judges. God gave them judges. God gave them prophets. The reality is God giving his people prophets and judges was a picture of grace. It's a picture of mercy. You're in a mess. You need some help. Here's a judge. Not necessarily going to tell you what you want to hear, but he's going to tell you what you need to hear. And in this case, Israel cries out to God. God sends a prophet, and I won't read it, but in Judges chapter 6, verse 8 through 10, the prophet has to preach to them the word of God. Maybe I should read it. Some of you, it's only 1130, just in case anybody's looking. Everybody, what time is it already? Huh? Lord sent a prophet, said to the children of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt. Oh, here we go, God. I wonder if they were saying that. Y'all with me? You call on your parents for help. I wrecked the car. Right? Anybody ever made that phone call? My mom told a different story than what really happened, but I wrecked the car one time. Yeah, I wrecked the car. No, I wasn't going fast. Somehow the whole front end's going. I don't know, but it was a heavy car in front of me. <laughs> and it was. It was, a, you know. Um, what does that, what's, what's that follow-up sound like? Well, before I help you, let me tell you what I've already done for you. And God says, hey, through the angel of the Lord, which is God speaking to them, says, I brought you from Egypt, I brought you out of bondage, I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, those that oppressed you, I drove you out from before them, I gave you their land, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God, fear not the gods of the Amorites, by the way, the Amorites are mixing with the Midianites, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Ouch. Thanks for reminding me. But I'm going to help you. But I want you to know what I've already done for you. What, what is God saying? Is God rubbing it in? No. Because later, I, I get ahead of myself, later Gideon has some questions. And basically he asks, God, why have you forsaken Israel? And what God is saying in this response here is, I never forsook you, you forsook me. Let's get the story straight before I help you out. You're in this mess because you left me. But here I am to help again. And the help was Gideon. God called Gideon to be the next judge of Israel. I have to say this because I've already poked the bear a couple times. Gideon, this is biblical fact, Gideon was both a spiritual and military leader. Let me say it this way. Gideon was both a spiritual and political leader. Stop swallowing the shiny lure of the enemy telling the church to not be involved in politics. 
If I get a few more agrees on this side, I'll stop right there. Might do this. It's all through Scripture. God called Gideon to stand up for his country in both a political and military way, but also spiritual. So let's look at a few things about Gideon. We're still introducing. Here we go. We see in Judges 6, 11, and 12, this great man, Gideon, was afraid. He was afraid. In Judges 6, 11, and 12, you don't have to read it. I'll read it for you. You have to, you have to see this. Gideon is when the angel comes to Gideon and calls the angel of the Lord, God calls Gideon. The Bible says that Gideon is threshing wheat at the wine press. Now, I could say some things here that wouldn't be politically correct, but um, I won't. I'll say what's biblically correct. Um, the wine press is at the bottom of the mountain because you carry grapes down to the bottom. You wouldn't carry them to the top. That'd just be working harder, not smarter. But the threshing floor would be at the top of the mountain. Why? That's where it's windy. So when you thresh wheat, you get the chaff gone, the wind blows the chaff. This cat is at the base of the mountain where there's no wind threshing wheat, which, if you've ever done this before, I have, no, is a mess because he's threshing wheat expecting the chaff to blow away, and guess what? It's not. He's doing everything he's not supposed to be, and there's got to be a reason. He's scared. The Bible says it in verse 11 and 12. He's not at the top threshing wheat like people with common sense are. He's down at the bottom trying to make this thing work because he's afraid. Who's he afraid of? The Midianites. He's threshing wheat. Um, J. Vernon McGee, which you got to like him, start to, makes this look like he's just an absolute fool. He's down there covered in wheat and blah, 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 and he talks about him being itchy and scratching and all this stuff. But he's, he's in this position because he's afraid. He's scared. Later you'll see he's afraid and God says, hey, if you're still afraid, take a friend with you and go down and listen to him. I won't, I won't have time to preach that out, but this guy's a scaredy cat. But notice what, what God says about him. God tells him in verse 12, y'all with me? Thou mighty man of valor. Now, if you didn't study this passage before you came to church today, you didn't find that amusing. He is scared as he can be, hiding out, and God calls him and says, you mighty man of valor. Now, I think God has a sense of humor, and this could be chuckling funny. But since we're not here to laugh today, because that's of the devil, let's look at the spiritual implications and appreciate this. Y'all listen, this is serious. God sees something in you that you'd never see in yourself. He really does. And he's, called, he's calling Gideon to be the leader, to lead Israel against an enemy and provide their independence. He was afraid. And he had questions. He asked this question in verse 13. If God is with us, why is all this happening? Oh, what a message right there. How many times have Christians said this? If God's still God and he's in control, why is all this happening? Where are his miracles? 
Has God forsaken us? We've already covered this. No, you have forsaken God. We also see something about him in verse 15, that he was poor, he was the, his family was poor, and that he was the youngest of the family. He was a nobody. Good thing is he knew it. God, why are you calling on me? I'm afraid. I'm a nobody. My family's poor. I'm the youngest one. And God says, you mighty man of valor. I have to say this because it hit me this morning. God can turn a coward into the empowered. And this is exactly what happens. God can use you, scaredy cat. God can use you, he wants to use you, and you can be used, whether you're the youngest, whether you're the poorest, whether you're the nobody, God can use you if you allow him to use you and empower you. Gideon's going to be used of God. And here comes the fight. You ready? There's three truths in this text. Relax. Trust me, relax. That helps us like it helped Gideon. First of all, we understand the promises of God. This is real quick. I'm going to pull it off like a Band-Aid. Y'all ready? Verse 14, And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in thy might, and thou shalt save Israel. Three promises of God that we see here to Gideon that help his faith. First, you shall save Israel. Y'all know when God says shall, it means something, right? God says thou shalt save Israel. It's going to happen. And he also said thou shalt smite the Midianites. It's going to happen. God says shall, it shall And this was really important. In Judges 6, 23, the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto you. Fear not. Thou shalt not die. That's always encouraging. Right? Relax. You're not going to die. Woo. Now, I don't have time to add this to the sermon, but the reason he says this is, and it's, it's right in the middle of the text, he tells Gideon to go to his dad's house, who his dad's worshiping Baal, and tear down the altars. Now, if you read it, it's, it's entertaining, because God didn't just say go in there and tear stuff up. He like specifically says, take this piece and tear up this, and take this second bull and sacrifice it, and make a big deal about it. Thou shalt not die. And a few verses later, the whole town's ready to kill him. Like they do, a, they do a formal investigation. It's in the text. And they say, hey, who do y'all think did this? And all signs point to Gideon. And they say, hey, let's kill him. Isn't it encouraging to know? Y'all with me? The enemy would like to destroy you. But God says, thou shalt not die. Oh, yeah, you might. This is just, I'm going to say this flippantly. They might kill you, but you won't die. Y'all following? It's like the worst thing that could happen is kind of the best thing that could happen is they kill me. Some of y'all don't like that as much as others. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get killed. I can promise you there's a few that would like to see me die. And probably you too. 
We have an enemy that would like to see us eliminated. Y'all don't, don't appreciate that. It's not encouraging. We're not writing a good Hallmark card to you. Hey, congratulations, the enemy wants to kill you. Have a good day. Love Jesus. I don't know. That doesn't sound warm and fuzzy, but the reality is the enemy wants to destroy the church. You won't die. The promises of God are essential for the fight that we're in. And then we see the fun part, the purging of God's army. Now, trust me, I've had to pray and ask for um, restraints and not to be non-contextual in this, but I could. I won't read it to you, I've already read it. But God says, you got too many people. Gideon says in his mind, this is in the Book of Mormon. Gideon says, how can you have too many people? The Midianites have 135,000 people in their army. We know based on the math that Gideon's got 32,000 that show up. And God says, you got too many. No, nah, no, nah, we don't, God. No, nah, we need these. And God says, you got too many. Why does God say you have too many? Lest they vaunt themselves against me saying, my hand has saved me. Church, God not only wants, he deserves all the credit for every victory that's ever been won. And he will ensure that he gets the credit. You got people walking around saying they did this, they did that, they did this. God probably had nothing to do with it. God says, I want to whittle it down. I thought about this. I told my wife this last night. We were going to dinner, and I was like, I kind of try to preach some of it because I know she sleeps during the service on Sunday, so I want to make it. No, don't. And just see if she says that sounds good or yeah. And so um, I was like, I was studying this, and I've been through getting a lot, and I thought, you know what? We're talking about a man of faith. And at this point, it, it, never, it never entered my mind. At this point, Gideon could have just said, I'm good, God, I quit. Now, that would change the story quite dramatically. But Gideon's got 32,000 men. There's 135,000 of them all around. And 32,000 show up, and God says, you got too many. And Gideon could have said, I'm out. Find another one. But he doesn't. He doesn't. This speaks volumes about the faith of Gideon. He's a scaredy cat, and God says, I'm going to help you out. But let's whittle down these 32,000. How does he do it? I, I got to say this, because this, this is probably worthwhile. There's two good biblical reminders when serving the Lord. Everybody listening? We all are called to serve the Lord. In some capacity, we're to serve the Lord. We're to stand up for him. We're to fight for him, for his word. There's two good biblical reminders that I think will go a long, long way, and it went a long way for Gideon. Number one, it's not number one for you note takers, Isaiah 55, eight and nine. It's one of my go-to verses. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
God operates differently. You can't understand it. Second verse. These are good verses. You've probably heard them before. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Here's the part that's troublesome. And lean not on your own understanding. Gideon's own understanding was, God, you're not very good at math. Have you counted them? Have you counted us? Now trust not in your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. God has a purpose for this purging. Why? So that they don't say they did it. So that God gets the credit. And what does he do? There's two things he does. He eliminates the fearful and he eliminates the foolish. I've been here. I got a picture, right? Show, me, show the next picture, I think. That's not it. Welcome. All right. Now, I, I'm not going to go into great detail about this picture, but um, it's kind of given a mixed signal. So God says, call him. Well, the first thing he does, he eliminates the fearful. This is fun. I love how this meeting must have looked. 32,000, I don't know how they are. Gideon stands up and says, all right, boys, we got too many. Anybody appreciate that? <laughs> well, we have too many warriors. We're going to have to let some of you go. And um, so if you're afraid, pack up your bags and leave. 22,000 people left. Can can anybody appreciate what this looks like? All right, then. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Scaredy cat, wimp. Right, I don't know what's going on. Go back to your mom's. I don't know. It's something. <laughs> There's all kind of stuff going on. 22,000 leave and 10,000 remain. He eliminated the fearful. Don't need you. I'm trying not to be sidetracked here. There's, there's no place for the fearful in this fight. And then he eliminated the foolish. Now I know where I'm about to go, there's some people that disagree with this. But there's 10,000 and we say we've got to whittle it down some more. Hey, have them come drink some water and this is how we're going to discern who to let go and who not to let go. And so they all drink. Now, keep in mind, there's 10,000 people, so it probably wasn't like a line. I don't know. And if they were 10,000 wide, then he couldn't see them all. So I don't know how this happened. One at a time, come get some water. Let me see how this happened. I don't know, but God says, let them drink. And the ones who uh, bend over and lap like a dog, the King James uses the word lap two times. It'll get a little confusing, but it's the manner of which we lap, like we used to lap from the hose pipe back in the day. You more distinguished folks, that's the garden hose. But anyway, so they lapped, and there were some that lapped with their hand to their mouth, and there were some that dropped down on both knees and went at it. Now, I messed up in this picture because I did a little of both. So forget that picture. Get away, they're looking at it, and they're going to get confused. No, so 300 of them lapped with their hand to their mouth, Alert. 
Now, I know there's some theologians saying there's no real basis on this. Uh, all I know is they're at war, and they just got rid of 22,000 people, and there's 135,000 of them. They're probably looking around, I think. And so God says, hey, get rid of the others. So now we got 300 people. He shrank it from 32,000 to 300. We're to be sober. We're to be vigilant. We're never to take our eyes off the enemy. Now, even if you don't like that application there, forget that. We are to be sober. We are to be vigilant. We are to know what's going on around us. And we're to be prepared. It's important to understand the promises of God. It's important to understand the purging of God's army. I have to say this because I won't sleep good if I don't. God's army is experiencing a purging, at least in America. There are different ways it's happening. Be careful how you drink. No, no. There are different influences and consequences that are affecting people in different ways and God's army is shrinking. But the reality is those that are left behind are men and women of faith who can do far greater than the foolish and the fearful when they're among us. Sometimes you gotta trim the fat. I'm not the fat trimmer. God is. And the church of God will be trimmed to a mobile, lean, fighting machine and can do more with less. It's a good time for us to collectively sing little as much when God is in it. The last thing we see is the power of God's army. The Lord said to Gideon, by these 300 men, I will save you, deliver you, Midian. Remember what he said in chapter 6, verse 16? I will be with you, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one. That was a powerful statement. There's 135,000, but I'm going to let you defeat them as if it were one man. 300 to one is pretty good odds. Y'all following the math? God empowered his army. Not only did he defeat 300, with 300, he did it in a way where only God could receive the credit. It's not in our text, but it's worth mentioning. In Judges 7, verses 16 through 18, and many of us know the end of the story, the rest of the story, God used 300 men to defeat the army, and not only did he use them outnumbered, he used them and to defeat in a, in a way only God would do. Now, if you paid attention, when the scaredy cats left, they left their lights and their pitchers, their clay pitchers, not the pitchers of their family. Some of you were confused, but the clay pitchers and pots.
God said for the 300 left to take these pitchers, take your trumpets, and take your lamps, and this is how you're going to win. Surround them and scream. Blow your trumpets and scream. And break your pots and your pitchers. Is this the first time any of y'all have heard that? So 300 people doing what God said to do defeated an army. When I think about 12 people who did what God said to do, empowered by the Holy Spirit, changing the world, imagine what 300 soldiers empowered by the Spirit of God could do to this community. when we do what he's told us to do. I said, that's kind of weird. All they did is make a lot of noise and said, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And they all turned on themselves and fled. It's like, that don't make any sense. Well, God's ways are not our ways. And guess what? He did it in a way so that nobody could say, boy, Gideon was the man. There were 300 Rambos out there. They slit their throats and uh, uh. no, it was, dude, we had 300 people. We went against 135,000. All we did was blew trumpets and screamed. And some redneck said, well, that must have been God. And he said, I'm going to do it this way so that no man takes credit. God can do far more than we could ever imagine in ways that we would have never, would never imagine him doing it. God spoke to Jeremiah and he said, hey, tell the people to call on me and I will answer them and show them great and mighty things which they've never seen before. Don't you think these 300 told their grandkids about this fight? And their grandkids are like, that's crazy, Grandpa. He's like, yeah, that's crazy. That's how God did it. And that's, by the way, grandson, that's how we know God did it because we were just scaredy cats empowered by God and did exactly what he said to do. It's hard for me not to imagine that there's some insurmountable, unthinkable needs in the church today. Things that only God can do. Things that God can do, but wants to use you and me to accomplish it. No doubt there's some dads and some moms and some teenagers that are like, I'm I'm scared. Or I'm, do you know who I am, God? I'm, I'm nobody. I mean, my family's not rich. Nobody really knows who I am. I'm young. And God says, yeah, but little is much when God's in it. If you trust in me, you have faith in me, I can do great and mighty things in and through you that you've never even imagined. You got somebody that's lost, that's a friend or family? One of those that you say, um, 
Man, y'all understand? God's going to have to do something crazy to save that person. Yep, that, that was kind of a comical theologian joke there. You know that person? Boy, if they get saved, it's going to have to be God. Anybody ever said anything like that? Don't, but you just in case. Can he? Yeah. Can he use you? Yeah. Are you afraid? Probably. But what if he empowers you? Y'all know me, I'm all about the family. I'm all about God saying, hey, moms and dads, raise your families right. Hey, there's some scared parents. What if I do this? They're gonna look at us funny. Or we're keeping up with the Joneses over here and they do this, but we do this. You're a scaredy cat. God can empower you to do what he's called you to do. Church, We've got a job to do. Our job is not what we're doing right now. This is not our job. This is what we get to do. Isn't it fun? Everybody look at your neighbor and say, this is fun. (laughs) No, our job is to go out and leave here and to reach people with the gospel, to disciple people in the word of God. You scared? Probably. Is the church scared? Probably. Do we think we're not good enough? Probably. But God's commanded us to do it. And he said, I will empower you to do it. We're in a fight. We need his power to be successful in this fight. Would you stand with me? Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.